0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Yo. Technology. What is it all about? I tell people, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you could kind of walk out in normal times, not COVID times go buy a newspaper for 30 cents, read it, drop it into the recycling bin, and like, nothing happened. Good luck trying to, you know, go to 10 pages today.
2: Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Thank you for tuning in. We're still standing. Uh, yes, yeah, so I had a bit of a wobble last week, but we're still here. i white-knuckling it until January 20th, but my goodness, I feel like every week these past few months, I'm like, man, this is a crazy week. And then the next thing happens, um, but I'm hoping, praying, that this is not the case next week, which of course is the inauguration. Now, I've been writing a lot about Big Tech's role, its reaction to the storming of the Capitol, and... And everything else, and I'm actually writing another big piece for this weekend's paper, so do check that out. But on here, I'm taking a break from politics, and I think we could all use one. I know I can. And not only that, we have a great double episode this week. That's right, two guests. And our first, I'm very excited about. He is Sridhar Ramaswamy. For many moons, he ran the ads business for Google. So uh, he was there for 15 years. He took that, you know, really the cash cow of the Google empire. From a billion dollars a year to, you know, about $120 billion a year. So there's that. Um, but he left a couple years ago and not long after it started, believe it or not, a rival to Google. Now, on the face of it, that sounds crazy. Um, why started a search engine? You know, look at Bing. Oh yeah, Bing. Uh, has been trying for more than a decade and they've eaten out a whopping 2%. Market share, but Sridhar believes his startup, which is called Neva, can make a dent by doing what Google doesn't, which is it won't track you, won't sell you ads. Um, it will be pure, unadulterated results. And one more thing, you'll have to pay for it. Yeah, it's going to be a subscription search engine. Now that may all sound like a very big task, he said himself. But he has some very smart backers, including Sequoia, which happened to be the same venture capitalist who backed a little company called Google back in 1998. So anyhow, we talk about why he is taking on this trillion dollar giant and how he thinks he can win. And then after that conversation, I'll bring on Francis Suarez, who is the mayor of Miami. Now, you might be wondering... Why do you have the mayor of Miami on this podcast? But of course, if you're interested in the tech world, and I'm guessing you are because you listen to this podcast, you'll know that Miami is having a moment. Uh, If my Twitter feed was to be believed, everyone is leaving San Francisco because it's too expensive. COVID means you can work from anywhere. And they're going to one of two places, Austin or Miami. Now, Austin, we know it's an established tech hub. Miami, not so much. But Suarez is, he's really making a run at it. And who knows, will it work? We shall see. But we talked to him about the moment Miami is having and how it all started with a tweet. So do stick around for that. It's a really fun conversation. But for now, I will hand you over to my conversation with Sridhar Ramaswamy, founder of Neva, the giant slayer. Enjoy. I was kind of doing some research before we got on the call and I was on StatCounter's website, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And it shows the um, market share of the big search engines and it's Google 92%. DuckDuckGo, I think, is like number four, number five. It's got 0.6% and they've been at this for 12 years. I think Bing is 2%. They've been at this, I don't know, for how long and how many billions they put into that. So the obvious question is... Why even take this on when you have this incumbent that is so powerful and so dominant, and you have companies that have been at this for a decade or more throwing billions of dollars at it and nothing has
1: worked, why will what you are doing work? You know, first and foremost is I worked in search ads, which is an you know integral part of search yeah for most of the last you know, 15 plus years, so I sort of intimately know all the things that Google got right, but also the things that say a Bing or a Duck, um, that at least in my opinion, didn't quite get right. Right. Um, But my larger narrative around Neva is that search is still a really important function. We instinctively turn to it. Whether it's news, a product to buy, something you're researching, oddball headache, it's the place that we, you know, turn to. And uh, while there are multiple search engines, they all have the same model. You type in a query, you get a bunch of ads, and then you get organic results. And the space occupied by ads keeps sort of going up relentlessly day after day, year after year. So one of the primary reasons for starting Neva was to focus on this important problem of search with a very different customer first mentality. So we thought that this would both be a very different way to create a business, but also create a much more useful product. Uh, Since my thesis, you know, which is an easy thesis, if you think about it, is like five years from now, Google and Bing are going to have more ads on the search results page. And so those are kind of the main reasons. You know, I, my co-founder Vivek, a lot of folks in the team, we love the problem. We think it's an important one. We think important problems like this need new looks, need new innovation and ways of thinking about what a great product could be. And we think we kind of have both the background and the set of principles that let us stand apart from how things work today.
2: And before we get into the nitty gritty of that, can you just talk about your time at Google and what eventually led you to leave? Because um, I think you left, what, about two, two and a half years ago, something two years right ago. there? years ago,
1: yeah. So I was at Google for 15 years. Funny little story, I was sent to work on the search ads team because my first manager found the word database in my resume and said, aha, he should go work on ads. (laughs) Um, That was the AI that decided my future for 15 years. And, you know, clearly right place at the right time and all of that. Google was a pretty incredible place and search and search ads. Little did we realize then how much impact it was going to have on the world. And I can certainly assure you that nobody thought in the early 2000s that it was going to be a hundred billion dollar business, which is roughly what it was the year that I left Google.
2: Can you give me a sense of what was it then? What was that business when you arrived there? Was I mean because I, I do recall, you know, there being a question of way back when of like, you know, well, how's Google actually gonna make money? <laughs> <That's right. laughs> which is wild to think about now, but that was that was a thing back in
1: the early days. That's right. That's right. So, um, search ads, if I remember correctly, made roughly 1.6 billion already, which is an astronomical number by any standards, uh, yeah. in 2003. What was remarkable was the the CAGR, the cumulative growth, as it were, through all of these years, it's been over 15%. Um, and so you really right. get like the power of compounding over 15 enormous years. Um, there are a few things that went into creating that success, not all divined by people, it just happened to be. The first and foremost is that you have pinpoint intent when you're serving search ads. Um, and somebody types in a pretty precise search query, you know what they're looking for. So advertising tends to be very effective and very relevant. And then you combine this with what is called conversion tracking, the ability to figure out Was this ad actually useful in driving what is called a conversion on you, the advertiser's website? It's the power of these two that let people really optimize their ad spend year upon year, making it just more and more efficient to go from advertising dollars to actual sales spend. And that, you know, obviously, in combination with things like the desktop to mobile transition, which was an important transition that I was a part of, um, was kind of what made Google search and search ads the juggernaut of a business that it is. Why did you leave? Fifteen years is a long time at any place, first and foremost. And uh, it'll sound silly, but I was like, I have more things to do. I didn't mm. want to just retire. And I was worried that I would just get more and more comfortable. And, uh, you know, in my life, I've sort of changed tags, changed careers. I used to be an academic. I worked for Bell Labs out in New Jersey. Came out west because I kind of decided that I liked creating software way more. I became a manager earlier in a startup, decided I didn't like it. I really liked writing software, then kind of became a manager and learned what it took to be the leader of a really large team. My team was over 10,000 people when I left. Where was that? This was the Google. Oh, okay, the, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The ads team itself, obviously, you know, a $100 yeah. billion dollar business is a big business. So there was a part of me that said, like, there are things still left to do. I like creating things, and I wanted to make sure that I tried my hand at several more things before, you know, before I retired. I was 50 at the time, and uh, I wanted a clean start. In many ways, being a part of Google casts a very long shadow, in mm. a good way, over what you have done. I was like, okay, time to press the reset button, learn new things. And uh, so I started at Greylock as a venture partner. I still am a venture partner there. I do investing part-time for them. But a few months afterwards, you know, discussions with Vivek, my co-founder, got more and more serious. And that is when we decided that we were going to start Niva.
2: What is the problem you hope to solve? Was there like a moment where you're like, you know what, this, what the Google search thing has become is different or has strayed far enough from what it started out as which is you know it started out as like you type in words to this little white box and it just produces like pure unadulterated organic results and this is so useful and today it almost feels like the yellow pages like you put something in and then you have five or six or seven or eight paid ads that people are paying dearly for to appear at the top of a search for you know whatever the term may be, and then way down there at the bottom is maybe, you know, what is just the the kind of the organic answer?
1: There isn't a single moment, you know. I would say it's a series of moments um, that kind of ended up pointing this way. One set of realizations were around the fact that this ad-supported internet that we live in is kind of not that great from a larger societal sense. There's just sort of extensive and pervasive tracking of everything that we do in the name of ad efficiency. I tell people, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you could kind of walk out in normal times, not COVID times, go buy a newspaper for 30 cents, read it, drop it into the recycling bin, and like, nothing happened. That's all you did. Good luck trying to, you know, go to 10 pages today. Um, And so there was this one angle that said, like, this reliance on advertising just creates these very strange outcomes. That was one. Um, The second one, as I said, was the realization that there were just going to be more and more ads on search products. And I have to confess, I was very much a part of it. That's how you make more money. And then a third set of realizations was around the fact that you know, search engines are naturally inclined to devote more and more of the space to their own products, whether it's a Google local or flights. I used to run the flights team or other things that you did. There was this pressure, strong pressure to favor yourself when it came to the search result page. And then funnily enough, I think the day after I left Google and joined Greylock, the first thing was I was trying to look for documents that related to a certain company. Yeah. Um, these are internal documents. And there's no easy way to find it because, you know, Greylock, like a lot of other companies, or oh, they use G Suite, they use Office 365, they also have Dropbox. And actually trying to get at, okay, what are all the documents about this startup that I want to find out more about involved this extensive searching. I would say it was like the series of this moments that led to our visualizing Neva as an ads-free privacy focused, customer focused search engine. And if we were able to do that, then it's very natural for us to say, hey, you can connect your personal data in addition. If you want, it's an optional part of Neva and we'll search through those files also. It's the same single search box, whether you're looking for a copy of your passport or like my taxes are on drive, or you're looking for something from the web. Here's like the simple service that makes it all available to you What we also give you is peace of mind. It's a product that's focused on serving you. Yes, in a few months, we'll say there'll be a subscription, probably like $5 a month. But our take is it is enough of a daily use product for enough people Mm. that we can create a sustainable business.
2: One question I have is it does feel like there's an assumption, and I don't know if it's a correct one. I mean, it'll be proven out that people are so concerned about their privacy about being tracked on the internet, that they will, they will pay for something that doesn't do that. I mean, do you have any sense that that actually is true? Because it feels like, I mean, I'm a journalist, I cover the tech industry, I know well and have written much about this idea of tracking, lack of privacy, all of these things, but the average internet-going person, it's not clear to me that they care. And it's not clear to me that when they put something into a search box and it's a bunch of paid ads... That one, they even necessarily notice, or two, again, care. Um, that, you know, it's a kind of a steady drip, drip of like, yeah, this isn't what it used to be, but most people haven't noticed, and most people aren't that concerned about it. So it's kind of fine. But it does feel like the premise of what you guys and a few of the other kind of um, startup search engines are trying to do is it, it, one of the assumptions is that there is this pent-up demand for something different. And it's not clear to me that that exists.
1: Changes like this are slow and imperceptible. And one of the things that we have learned is that there's a wide variety of opinions and degrees of alarm with respect to how people feel about this. And so we do a lot of user interviews. We do a lot of surveys. Mm. Um, The first thing that I'll say is I'm actually pretty uniformly impressed by how knowledgeable people are about, you know, about ads, about the impact of ads have, uh, the impact that ads have on their own behavior and uh, their savviness. I talked to this ice hockey mom from North Dakota who told me all the things that she did. To figure out how to get the best deals for ice hockey equipment for her kids, mm-hmm. she totally knew like where to look, where not to buy from, where to buy from. Um, so to give you more concrete stats, 20 to 30 percent of our population, you know, actively dislikes the amount of search ads that there are on search engines. So it's not that they are like completely unaware of it; they absolutely know it, and they actively dislike it.
2: And what is that? What are those numbers from?
1: Um, these are surveys that we run off of SurveyMonkey. Okay. You know, we run pretty large surveys. Huh? This is survey data. The first part about the Aesaki mom was, you know, we do user interviews. Right, right. Um, similarly, a ton of people are concerned about privacy. And much more importantly, people also recognize that search in particular is a really important function. You know, it's one of the most important, you know, what one calls an aggregator function, meaning it is the one place that you start with many different kinds of intent. As I said, whether it is a local plumber or a shop or a stock that you're interested in or news or something that you need to know about taxes, it's like the one place that aggregates all of these things. Yeah. Um, and so people inherently understand that this is very powerful. And there have been studies published by folks, for example, in The Economist that talk about how search is the most valued function of all the free Internet services that there are. And the final thing I'll say is you talked about market share, Hmm. you know, when you started. First of all, when you're a startup, you don't worry about market share. You worry about having a viable product that people will actually like and pay. Our bet is that we, for example, will be able to get to a million paying users, which for a startup is a lot of money, even if it's only $50 to $100 a year. Um, There is still substantial revenue for a startup that, you know, we currently make $0. Our bet is that that will give us sufficient momentum to be able to invest more into the product. Our bet is also that being ads-free and customer-first lets us create a better product. If you search for, say, uh, a product on Neva, we don't have a vested interest in you buying that product that very instant. We're Mm -hmm. perfectly happy uh, to tell you, Danny, here are some reviews. You should learn more about the product if you want. And so there is a pace and attitude to the product that comes across clearly as being customer first. It's really a combination of all of these things that makes us think that we'll be viable. And for me, viable is being able to create all the tech that we need to sustain the company, sustain the search product ourselves. Things like market share are secondary consequences of us creating a great product.
2: And what role, if any, um, and it may be none at all, but obviously Google is being sued by the government by 38 state attorneys general on antitrust grounds. I think the attorney general from the states, um, that suit is specifically around search. Was that part of your calculus in terms of timing this or was it just, you know, how important is that? Because, I mean, there's a lot of people who talk about, oh, back in the late 90s when Microsoft got sued, that also happened to be when Google started I don't necessarily buy that argument that one led to the other, but this idea that perhaps this giant behemoth was so focused on fighting off the government and keeping its empire intact that it kind of took its eye off the ball and therefore there was some more oxygen in the room for rivals to start up. I don't know if that is part of what you guys have thought about or if you have a view as to just a general turn against big tech and Google and Facebook in particular and what that means for you as a startup going into that into this
1: world. I don't think it means anything in the short term. I'm a little bit of a student of this kind of stuff on the side. These things take like 5 years to develop. And so, anyone, any startup that's holding its breath, thinking that (laughs) you know some antitrust case is going to go forward soon enough to make a difference to it, is you know, has has issues. But I do think that the larger trend of realization that there are these you know large tech companies that effectively shut off competition, increases scrutiny, and makes our job as a startup a little bit easier, just in terms of effectively even getting the word out there that there are new products in the space. As you know, that is hard. That's number one. And the second one, the DOJ case is actually a very specific case focused on the arrangements that Google has around securing default positions in various platforms. Defaults matter a lot. Contrary to popular belief, just offering somebody an option does not actually make them even bother to go look at it. Um, And so to the extent that There is more visibility for these options. I would say that is um, more people that will trial Neva, more people that will become customers of Neva. That is a good thing. And likely those actions will actually precede whatever case is filed, you know, and is brought to court against Google. So I would say in that sense, it is a mild positive, but I don't think anyone is smart enough to figure out the timings of these things and say like, I'm going to take business advantage of it by starting a company. Yeah.
2: that is as good as Google in terms of the results it produces. Because I was talking to an analyst the other day and he's like, you know, people think of Google as this software company where people are riding around on skateboards and, you know, the Technicolor offices and beanbag chairs and nap rooms and all that stuff. But what this actually is, is a large industrial company that spends, Alphabet spends, you know, whatever, $20 billion a year on CapEx. And a lot of that goes into just the infrastructure that is required in indexing the entire web, and if the web is always growing, of course, so it keeps getting bigger and bigger and more and more expensive to do this. How do you, as a startup that's raised, you know, whatever, I think it's $37 million, what do you do? How do you c- create something without that whole layer of infrastructure that they built up over, you know, 20 years and probably, you know, tens if not hundreds of billions of dollars?
1: Um, A few different answers. One is, you know, a good number of folks that are in our team were part of this growing up journey. There was a time when I personally would push code to all the ad servers at Google. And so I've, you know, been very intimately involved with all of the degrees of scale that it went through. And one of the benefits that you get when you do something like that is you know what is easy, what is hard, what the important steps to take along the way are. So you have a degree of knowledge about how you create services like that without necessarily saying, okay, I need $10 billion to get going. So that's the first thing. This is what we have done for a living for the better part of like a decade and a half. The second thing is, this is where cloud is a really, really, really big deal because what uh, the cloud companies, Google included, have made it possible for companies like Neva to do is not bother at all with CapEx. Everything is OpEx for us, meaning we pay for what we spend this year. We pay for what we spend this month. If we want to do more, because we have some interesting work that we need to get done, you know, we kind of go lease that. I think the cloud model is incredibly powerful in terms of enabling new companies to get started. And the third one is we do rely on existing services. We are on our way to building more and more of the course search ourselves. But, you know, we start using other services and then gradually build up our own services.
2: Are you you're referring to Bing?
1: We, we are referring to Bing, the stuff that's in local, the, you know, what's called the knowledge graph. If you look for a person, it will show you a nice card about the person. That's something that we've built. Um, When it comes to web search, we built a substantial amount of infrastructure that, you know, crawls and analyzes web pages ourselves. So these things are things that we can build over time. At all times, we want to have a credible product because, again, you don't want a startup to be in a situation where you're like, okay, it's going to take me four years before I can have a single customer. That's just, it's not that easy to know things that far ahead in advance. So I would say we have a number of things that make it possible for us to create a search engine from scratch. The final thing that I'll say is when Google came to be, the reaction from the Intelligentsia was, what, another search engine? Do we really need this? So I do think that 20 years out, we are in a situation where enough have changed about um, the world that we live in, that fresh new looks at the problem can produce interesting results.
2: But just that idea of the just the sheer amount of data and the ability to process it, is what you're saying is that because cloud computing resources are so cheap and you presumably have this search syndication deal with Bing that you can kind of ride those rails basically to approximate what, say, a much larger company like Google is able to produce when you type something in a little box.
1: The first one is a much bigger deal. I don't need to put up data centers. I don't need to lease buildings. I don't need to buy rack after rack of machine and networking of equipment and so on. Um, yes, AWS takes a nice surcharge on top of what it does, but that's a perfectly good deal because I'm not in the business of trying to find physical space or physical machines to do it. I would say that's the biggest advantage. The second one is relying on services like Yelp, like Bing, um, but we are in the process of pretty much building out these things ourselves. Again, this is where having a team that has dealt with these large-scale problems that has effective people working with it. Udi Manber, who used to be the head of Google Search, works part-time for us. And one of our board members is Bill Corin, who used to run Search for many years at Google. And Vivek was the tech lead for the Google Assistant when it first came out. And so we have a lot of folks that sort of know the area and are able to do things from scratch in a scrappy way. Um, This is not to say that, like, quality parity and making it better is going to be instantaneous. Um, But on the other hand, we have a degree of freedom with things like what we do on a commercial query that, like, I salivate over. You know, if you type the name of a product, I'm like, I got the whole page to show Danny cool, interesting things because I don't have the pressure of showing ads. So you actually win a lot in some areas just with that independence. In other areas, yes, you have to work a lot to pull up to parity and get better.
2: And would you agree that search is having a bit of a moment in that, you know, you guys have got raised some money. There's com, which has just kind of come out of the ch- shadows. And it does feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like this is just like nobody's going to bother with this for years because it was just seen as an impossibility. And perhaps it is because of these changes in the underlying tech infrastructure Combined with these changes in attitudes toward Google that you're thinking, okay, now you and others, this is a moment. This is, and investors are actually willing to make a bet that they thought would just be a stupid, you know, throwing money down a a hole in, you know, five years ago.
1: I do think that this is an interesting moment for, you know, this important problem for the variety of reasons. Personal data is more prevalent than ever. It's all over the place privacy is a real concern, but most people don't feel like they have real options. Uh, And there's obviously a lot of scrutiny around these companies. I think all of these create a market opportunity for us that a company like Neva has to, uh, you know, has to go seize quickly.
2: And the idea of subscriptions, is that the model now and forever? I mean, as far as you know, because obviously, and I know this from experience working in the newspaper industry, where like the internet kind of Comes about and all the newspapers give everything away for free. And then it's been a very, very painful transition from actually, we'd like you to pay for this thing. And it's working in pockets, but a lot of places it's not because people are like, well, wait a minute, I've been getting this thing for free for a decade. Why am I going to pay for
1: this? You know, for us, the subscription model is one that aligns closely with the customer. It sort of gives us the freedom intellectually to have the entirety of my team focus on creating that better product. You know, so we think that is actually pretty important that and the peace of mind that you as a customer get that here's a company that's actually dedicated to not just providing with a great product, but also ensuring your privacy in the process. And, uh, you know, to your question about the switch from free to paid, that is going to be one of the challenges that Neva clearly faces. And our bet is that there are, there'll be enough people that care, and the product will be better enough that we will get momentum. It is one of the biggest open questions that, um, that we have.
2: Right. Another question I had was when I was doing some reading before we got on the phone, one of the issues that came up, which I found interesting and I had no idea about, was this idea around web crawlers, um, which are these tools that go through all the websites to collect organic links that a lot of the big sites basically bar web crawlers from all but a few like you know front, except for google bing and a couple others which makes it very difficult for a company for a startup to just collect the basic data you need to create a good search engine
1: is that still the case and how do you get around that we're working with folks um you know we have a very good team and uh you know there are issues like uh rate limiting you do want to be careful with how you crawl somebody's site, you know, their business comes first, not the crawling that a search engine does. It is an issue, but in the big scheme of things, I don't think of this as an insurmountable issue for a company that, you know, we have really good engineers, we have good intent and incentives when it comes to working with the websites. So, yes, it is a it is an issue, but I don't see this as an insurmountable issue.
2: And have you ha- have you heard from any of your former colleagues of like hey, why are you guys coming for us or why? (laughs) Because you were like obviously inside the empire for so long. What's been the reaction from your former colleagues?
1: I'd say it's been mixed, broadly falling into three buckets. There's one set of people that roughly go, I understand why you are doing this. And I also understand that something like this is very hard to conceive inside Google. So good luck to you. There's the second set that kind of goes like, um, you really should have tried harder to create this within Google. You know, you're in a position of influence. Why could you not have? I respect both of these opinions. And then there's a third set that, you know, is just very uncomfortable about the fact that we might be competing and would prefer to avoid it. Um, it is how it is. It's
2: okay. Right, right, right. And one of the ideas that was that came up this summer, which in the UK and Europe, um, which I thought is interesting, and I'd love to get your view. The Competition and Markets Authority, the, the kind of the regulator in the U, in the UK, did this big deep dive into digital platforms, et cetera. And one of the potential remedies that they came up with was the idea of forcing Google to allow others access to like clickstream data and basically data from inside their search engine, so they can basically allowing them into the data so that they can build algorithms necessary to build a search engine. In other words, letting them ride on Google's rails in a way that they're not allowed to now. And I was wondering, one, do you think that would be a big deal? It does feel like it's a pretty far off possibility, but it's something that regulators, at least on the other side of the pond, are discussing.
1: Yeah, there are a range of possible options here, and I'm not a legal expert, so it's hard for me to say whether any of these are going to go through. But for example, even having a search API that's licensable at reasonable cost would be helpful. Bing has one. Google does not have a pure search API. It Mm -hmm. comes with ads. The crawl repository that you talked about earlier could really be seen as a public good because it is literally a copy of the public web. So one can argue that having that data be accessible in some form, similar to like say government records, is a useful thing for society, and there's nothing proprietary, you know, about that. Um, when you get further down, it becomes a little bit tricky because one can argue that user click data is not just public information in some sense but it's also the result of proprietary algorithms that then picked out which were the best pages to show for what query. I can see folks make a very reasonable claim that this is their business sort of value. These are the business secrets of the company that let them create a successful product and that it's not okay to be forced to hand that over. There's a spectrum here. So I think the discussion is interesting, but I'm far from being kind of a legal expert to say, what chance to do any of these schemes have to actually come to fruition? And what keeps you up at night?: It's hard to create a business. Um, it's hard to create a business when there is a product that's been worked on for 20 years. In that sense, that's the part that uh, doesn't keep me up at night. It is one that, it is one that concerns me, but we are closer and closer. You know We are currently in what you can call like a closed alpha, uh, but the number of users on it is scaling up pretty rapidly and I'm hoping to get to a point where anyone can sign up for the product and have a free trial roughly three to four months from now. That'll also be the time when we roll out subscriptions, so we should begin to get some early data. Um, yes, it's been you know 18 plus months of building and getting ready for this moment, but I actually feel like there's going to be some pretty interesting growth and learnings for the next few months.
2: Well, I look forward to it. I'm going to sign, I'm going to sign up. I'm very, very interested because I've, I've actually, we've had DuckDuck go on this podcast and they've obviously been at this for a long time. And you know, they're gaining market share, but it's so infinitesimal. It's hard to see the kind of the path there, but you're like a, a very small David against a very big Goliath. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All startups start out that way. And uh, in my mind, you need to have a product that is differentiated, and there's very much an element of are you at the right place at the right time? That's very much a part of every startup success.
2: Indeed, indeed. Well, I wish you luck and thank you for taking the time.
1: Thank you so much. This was great chatting with you. All right, so that was my
2: conversation with Sridhar. Hope you guys enjoyed that. And now I will bring on Francis Suarez, the mayor of Miami, to talk about why he thinks Miami's moment is sustainable and that within five years, five years, they could be number two to Silicon Valley in terms of American tech hubs. So have a listen. See what you think. Enjoy. It looks beautiful back there. Is that, is that set up to like give people a kind of Miami envy and convince them to move there? You got it.
3: I always say it's not a virtual
2: background. <laughs> so um, I got in touch because, I mean, I don't need to tell you, you Miami is having a bit of a moment. Why don't we start there? What do you have a sense of why all of a sudden you have, you know, prominent people saying,
3: you know, in the tech world in particular, I'm going to go I'm I'm going there. Yeah. I think it's a it's a, a confluence of factors that have sort of conspired uh to make this happen. You know, first of all, we've it's it's been a 10-year project for me and for this community to create a tech ecosystem. I think every city probably in America and almost every city in the world in terms of Creating an economy that's going to um, be the economy of the present and the future for not just my generation, but my children's generation, yeah. un- unborn grandchildren, right? I think that's that's probably the goal of every every major city in America. Uh, so we've all been working to make this happen. Um, when I tweeted out, "How can I help?" to the tweet of, you know, what if we brought Silicon Valley to Miami? Yeah, was that was that Keith Keith Raboy that that sent that out? That was Delian. That. Tweeted uh, uh, uh what if we brought Silicon Valley to Miami? And I tweeted at, you know, I, I quote tweeted him, How can I help?
2: Yeah. What was that? Was like what a month ago, a month, six weeks ago something? That was like that? about a month ago.
3: Yeah. Um, that tweet got about 2.3 million organic impressions. And then it got me into this mode, if you will, of of continuing to tweet and interact at a very, very comprehensive and intense level to the point where I've had I think in the month of December, which was probably three weeks right from the, the the date of the tweet, I think it was 27 million impressions, incredibly broad reach, all organic, nothing paid, um, just based on blood, sweat and tears and hard work. And I, I think part of the objective and and I think part of this uh, moment, if you will, is really changing the narrative about what people, how people view Miami and how people see Miami. When Amazon put us in the top 20, I think people were a bit surprised and, and, and said, wow, that's not in line with what we think of Miami or-
2: Oh, is this for the the competition for their second headquarters?
3: Yeah, and oh, yeah. then and then I think, you know, there are things that happened along the way that sort of conspired to make this moment a reality, right? You know, the SALT deduction, you know, and then of course COVID. I think, you know, whether you agree with our governor or disagree with our governor, he's taken a lot of criticism for his COVID policy. It's something that inevitably or, or, or indisputably, is probably a better word, has benefited the city, you know, because people are, Leaving places that they feel are closed, that they feel governments where that they feel that don't want them there. And certainly tax regimes that are that are exacerbating what is already a large cost of living differential. So, I mean, when you put that all together and you have from their perspective, a public official, the first one in America, really the only one in America saying, hey, how can I help you come over here? It was like, oh, my God, there's somebody that wants us. Uh, I think that. You know, it was a watershed sort of a lightning in the bottle type of moment. And then the tweets that followed were like me going to a beehive and shaking a beehive and seeing all the bees, you know, and realizing that our ecosystem is far deeper, far more dense and far more comprehensive than than probably I even knew. And the tweet and the, and the, the ones that followed created sort of a virtual sandhill Hill Road, you know, where people were converging virtually. And now that is with COVID protocols, converting itself into, you know, dinners and lunches. And I mean, I, and I, right. I created a, something called the Cafecito Tech Talk, where I have founders, VCs who are here in Miami permanently, temporarily, new, old, talking about their Miami story and recreating the narrative about Miami. So I think that's been the effort. You know, there's a lot more that we can talk about, but, but that's sort of the, the beginning point, if you will.
2: What's the aspiration? Because, I mean, I'm obviously out here in Silicon Valley or very near Silicon Valley, mid Oakland. But, um, you know, this has been built up over decades and decades. And you have, you know, the network here and just the amount of money and the amount of people with knowledge about how to make that money, turn, use that money to turn them into big world beating companies, et cetera, is very deep. And, you know, I used to live in London. The whole time I was there, it was like, you know, Silicon Roundabout, oh, we're trying to remake Silicon Valley here. I mean, this is not a new story. Do you think this time will be different in terms of what you're doing
3: out there? I do think it's different. Um, I think, you know, it's not just tech. It's also the financial industry. You know, we had uh, Blackstone, Move It's Tech, signalist last Monday, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, uh, Starwood Capital. The list goes on and on. Spotify, It just continues and continues, and I think it's it's a flywheel, right? So the the more that happens and the more it gets publicized, the more that it becomes easy, right? Because when people say, "Hey, this background that I have here," which is a big part of it as well, before COVID and the virtuality of our world, like we're having this interview, you know, we talked on the phone, we're like, "Hey, let's do it, do it on Zoom," you know, before the virtuality of our world, um, I think people felt more tethered to the place, right? And I think now mm-hmm. that has changed. And so our job or my job really is first of all, to, to be inviting and welcoming. Um, for some reason, there's a feeling that they're not welcome where they come from and that governments are not inviting and excited about having them there. I mean, at least that's a sentiment that they share with me. A lot of them.
2: Yeah. And I was going to, so you do get, that is a kind of a common, a common refrain amongst the people who are coming out there, these kind of new investors, tech entrepreneurs, et cetera.
3: Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, and I look, I'm, I'm, Friends with a lot of the mayors, so I, I, I one of the things yeah. I try not to do is speak ill of any mayor or city. Um, it's just not who I am, and it's that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to talk about our virtues. We're not. We're not. We're not. You know, so much. I mean, people will often ask me comparison questions, and I'll answer them. But um, you know, it, it, for me, it's about extolling our virtues, and our virtues are internationality, the fact that we are globally positioned uh, physically. Uh, in sort of the center of the world, if you will, because we're so close to South America. We're, we're direct flights to Europe and Asia, uh, the Middle East. Uh, so we're, we're very connected. And I think, uh, you know, we, we've had a lot of industries. And, and I think tech, if you think of tech, uh, people often think of it as an industry. But the truth of it is it's a sub-industry to every industry, right? It, it, it creates efficiencies yeah. in every industry. So uh, to me, it's really more about intellectual talent, We've been an intellectual talent exporter for 20 years when I was forty, I'm 43, when I was in my twenties. If you wanted to go to a great school, you went to an Ivy League school, you left Miami, and oftentimes you never came back, you know. So part of it is is changing that dynamic. I have friends in Silicon Valley that, you know, left or were in Boston in Silicon Valley, and now they're they're like, Oh, all anybody talks about here is in Miami. You know, and for them it's a source <clears> of pride. Um and 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 part of my job in terms of creating that critical mass of talent that we we see developing here is not just telling a better story about the talent that we develop and that we export oftentimes uh but uh, creating enough of a, a density uh and 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 changing that moment like you said into a movement so that people say wait a second uh, i can come back home and i can do the same things i'm doing here from home so there's a, a you know a huge comprehensive strategy around that uh but that's that's sort of the goal how important is tax or lack of it? I ask as a Californian who, you know, paying the highest state tax in America. I think it's incredibly important. I think the salt deduction, uh, think about this. When you're choosing a place, I think one of the first things you're going to think about is quality of life. You want to make sure that you're you're happy, uh, that you have parks, uh, cultural facilities, uh, that your children can grow up and study and and, and all those things. But then, then once you get past that. And there's a bunch of uh, quality of life differentials in you know the, the three or four major cities. But once you get past that, part of your quality of life equation is cost of living. So if you're paying two or three times for an apartment in, in the Valley uh, or in the Bay Area for what you can get here in Miami, you start thinking, wait a second, why, why am I paying more on the expense side? Then when you start looking at the income side and you have to uh, pay more and more in taxes that you can't deduct anymore from the federal income tax, the numbers just become, I mean, it's like a, like Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point. You know, it, just, it yeah. just gets to a point where you're like, that's it, I'm done. And then I think, I think the virtuality of, of COVID made it possible for people to dip their toe, if you will, uh, work virtually for three months or six months. And then once they get here and they realize, wait a second, this is not the same city that I left 20 years ago, or this city has really grown up, or wow, all the things that I like to do there are, are actually is better. You know what I mean? The, the culinary scene is better. The art scene is better. And so those are things that are allowing people to rediscover Miami or discover Miami for the first time. And I think we're winning that competition.
2: And is there any, are there any numbers you can put around, you know, because I, like many tech journalists, spend a lot of my time on Twitter. And if you read Twitter, it's like, oh my God, everybody's moving to Miami or Austin. But is there any kind of sense, you know, kind of numbers you can put around, like, you know, what is actually happening on the ground, whether that's, you know, new incorporations or people, you know... Net, high net worth individuals showing up there and setting up there.
3: So I, I would say, um, obviously we know the big players, right? We know the stories. It's, it's a lot more anecdotal than it is empirical. This has really been a month. And like I yeah. said, you know, let's say I, I meet 15 or 20 people. I'd say a good percentage of them have said like Keith, right? Like I'm in, let's say I'm buying my house. I'm in, this is like permanent. I'm yeah. done. And then there's another percentage that are like, I'm dipping my toe in the water. I want to see if this is real. Uh, I've been reading the same things that everybody else is reading. I want to check this out. What is this phenomenon all about? And then so then I become like a college recruiter, football recruiter. You know what I mean? And so I'm I'm, I'm focusing on that second half and getting them connected to people, you know, creating, like I said, that virtual Sand Hill Road and making sure that people feel like the density is here. And you can go to my Twitter and look at some of my Cafecito Tech Talks and see how people, these are all organic three to five minute conversations. And they're saying, Literally, I've had more productive meetings in four days in Miami than I've had in four years in Silicon Valley. I mean, their words, not mine. And I'm hearing right. that over and over again. It's not a one-time thing or a one-off, but I, I'm sure there'll be metrics as this phenomenon unfolds. I'm staffing up, right? So I'm creating a, a chief technologist position in my staff and doing a back-end office because literally, I was doing it all by myself, and the the, the number of DMs. And the number of meetings that I have, you know, are impossible for one human being to do that and and, and still be married and and not have a wife that, you know, wants to basically kill you. Right. Uh, So, uh, you know, I'm I'm young and energetic, but there's, there's limits to everything. So listen, we're analyzing everything. We're analyzing comparative laws We're analyzing comparative incentives. We're analyzing any sort of things that are perceived weaknesses or real weaknesses to strengthen them. So what I feel like we've done it, we've had this 10 year movement. And we're kind of like a startup, if you will, in tech. And now we have this accelerator, right? Or or like a VC that's investing in us, right? Saying, hey, we believe and we're accelerating this. So I think we're compressing another 10 years worth of growth into 12 months, maybe 24 months. And and so my job is to make that a reality and sustain it.
2: If you had to kind of boil it down into one factor that's really... Because as you say, if you've been at this for 10 years... Um, because you haven't been mayor for 10 years. You were-
3: I was a councilman for eight years. I've been mayor for three. So it's, I've been an elected official for 11 years.
2: Right. Is there one thing that kind of has pushed it? Is it COVID that has kind of really kind of made the moment, so to speak? I
3: think if I had to identify, I'd have to say at least two, right? I, I would say COVID. And then I would say the tweet in terms of this moment. I think the migration has been happening already. It's been happening for a few years, uh, certainly for two or three years since SALT. So there was a SALT migration.
2: For people who don't know what SALT is.
3: SALT is a, the, the, it's a tax deduction for state and local tax deduction. So that's what SALT stands for. So, so for those that don't know, like let's say in New York or in California, yeah. you have to pay a state income tax. You have yeah. to pay oftentimes a city income tax. We don't have a city income tax and we don't have a state income tax. So previously before SALT, you can deduct those income taxes from your federal income taxes. So it was a wash. It didn't It didn't cost you anything. Yeah. Uh, under the the new tax law, you know, because really they were getting a double benefit, right? The fact that a, a municipality decided they wanted to charge an income tax. We don't charge an income tax. We charge a property tax. Yeah. Uh, and they, by the way, they capped the property tax uh, as well at 10,000. So, uh, the, you know, deductible. So the fact that we have a lesser, uh, cheaper real estate, real estate values and, and a, you know, less expensive cost of living also benefits us on that.
2: Right. So what next? How do you kind of, how do you keep the flywheel going in the, in Silicon Valley speak?
3: I think you do it by number one, telling our story, right? I think, I don't think we've done a great job of telling our story. I think a lot of people come down here, believe it or not, and they're very quiet about it. And I've met, I met with a few people that I didn't even know were in Miami. I I met with somebody who was running a $30 billion fund, lived three blocks away from my house and had never met him. So part of it is there's a lot of people that are here. There's a lot of institutional capital that's always been here. They're just very quiet. Um, for a variety of reasons and now they're seeing this movement they're saying wait a second we want to be a part of this this is this is fun this is great people are talking about it um so i think they're kind of flirting with the with the idea of becoming ambassadors if you will and the flywheel continues because if we continue to be in the news if we continue to have you know these companies moving the narrative continues to build upon itself and the the sense that miami was just a sun and fun retirement community uh that reputation changes
2: right well, I wish you luck. Like I said, I mean, uh, you're not the first person to, to try to pull off this trick. People are do, trying to do it all over the world and no one's pulled it off yet.
3: Well, I'll, I'll say this. I'll, I'm going to I don't want to disagree too much with you because I don't like to disagree with reporters. Uh, but but, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll depart a little bit and I'll say this. A lot of people who have done our Cafecito Tech Talks have said that this is very reminiscent of New York 0809. Um, New York made a concerted effort in 0809 under Bloomberg uh, to build a tech ecosystem. And, you know, Mayor Bloomberg at the time, you know, really, really drilled down and, and sort of made that happen generically. Right. So I think yeah. I've had many people tell me this is this energy, this this moment, that scrappiness. It feels a lot like New York 08-09. So I, I would I would just say that it did work in that case. And I think we could easily be, you know, the third, fourth, you know, depending on where you put Austin, second biggest tech hub in America in less than five years.
2: And that's what's interesting. And then I'll let you go is just this, the scattering to the four winds of people that COVID has kind of forced. And now, as you say, people are kind of like, oh, actually this kind of works. And I can just, I don't have to be in one physical place the place that I thought I had to be. But the, the kind of the, yeah, the spreading out, the great spreading out, I think will continue.
3: And it will benefit Miami. And I think the second part is you know, it's been such a disruptive year for business that you've almost gotten like a pass in, in making decisions that, you know, uh, listen, moving a moving decision is a big decision. It's, it's like moving your house, moving your family. It's a big decision. So when when you have a disruption, like what happened in 2020, it, it's almost even failure, it's almost like acceptable, right? Because you realize, hey, we have a mulligan. This is like a mulligan year. So I think it, it created, it opened up the opportunity uh, to be able to be creative, if you will, and do things differently. And by the way, we're doing other things to try to capitalize on that as well.
2: Well, I wish you luck. And um, we'll speak again maybe in six months, a year, and see uh, see how it's all going. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Francis. I want to thank Sridhar for taking the time to chat. Uh, I want to thank you for listening and, of course, giving ratings and reviews, which you guys always do, which is always wonderful. And, yeah, if you're interested in my musings on big tech and, you know, the great deplatforming of Trump, do check that out this weekend in the paper or at thetimes.co.uk. And until next week, I leave you in peace. Stay safe. Stay sane. Bye-bye.
3: This podcast was brought to you thanks to the support of readers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley. Right at home.
0: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This message comes from
1: BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly